What do you do when suddenly you can't engage in research the way you planned? When something outside your control, like a worldwide pandemic, threatens to derail your research? When your one-year, five-year, ten-year plans get erased? On today's episode, Dr. Ann Coldiron faces this issue head-on. We'll hear about the importance of grieving the loss of your research journey and then getting up, brushing yourself off, and blazing a new path you might never have contemplated before. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. This is the inaugural episode of Journeys in Research, a podcast conceived by Florida State University's Office of Research Development as an on-the-go resource for faculty. Each episode will feature a different FSU faculty member, who will share stories about their research journey, and through that shared experience, help us understand the world of research beyond the college or departmental level. So no matter what field of study our guests come from, their journeys can be relatable to where we are now. Today's guest, Dr. Ann Coldiron, is one of FSU's 11 craft professors and is also an honorary professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland where she was the Barry Chair in English Literature from 2017 to 2018. She earned her PhD in English at the University of Virginia and her undergraduate degrees in French from Wake Forest University and the University of Paris. Cold Iron is the author of three major books, one edited collection of essays, and more than 80 published essays. And she has won over $1 million in research funding over the course of her academic career. I spoke with Anne in September 2020 in the wake of the shutdown. Naturally, our conversation began on that topic. When was that moment that you found out, wow, this research won't happen the way I want it to? Well, it was March 11th when we, when we shut down and when I realized that there's not going to be any travel, that the, the summer archival travel for five European libraries was not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> that was not going to happen. Um, and so, of course, that's that's sort of a short-term, immediate uh, shock to the system. But the implications of that continued to resonate throughout a book project and a project for a scholarly edition and some future grant funding I had been planning, as well as uh, a couple of articles in progress that were that had most most of the data was was gathered, but a few more things had to be filled in. So it, it had far-reaching effects, and I really did. I did have a, a bad afternoon when I re- <laughs> a really bad afternoon when I realized, uh oh, uh oh, this is not just the summer of 2020. This this has ramifications far beyond that. Mm-hmm. So after having the bad afternoon and 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 doing some grieving. Although I do think that's not just a one-day process. I think we really do have to be aware of our emotional attachment to our own research, in addition to the intellectual attachments. After that, I sat down with a big chart, a set of charts, and a, and a, a timeline, calendars, um, list of the projects that I had in process, and what the damage was going to be to each of those separate projects. And after that thorough assessment of damage... 
then I got really depressed. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing now, but yeah. So the thorough, be prepared if you do this thorough assessment of damage, be prepared to be depressed again. And, and again, pick yourself up and say, okay, what changes now will this entail? Will, will, is there any project here that really has to be abandoned? And, and I don't know about you, but I don't like to abandon a project once I've started it. I like to I like to see it through, even if I have to change it pretty radically. I don't want to abandon something good. So there were there you know there were a couple that looked like they might have to be abandoned, but instead, I thought, all right, have to change the the objects of study, have to change the methodology. Is there some way that I have something to contribute around this topic? Mm. It isn't what I had planned to contribute, and it yeah, it turned out there there were ways there there were ways, and I think that a lot of us have were just so stunned, or at least I was just so stunned at first that I never took the time to really grieve the losses mm. that are real to my research. We we all we all invest so much love and energy and effort into our research that when it gets derailed like this, it's it's almost you almost don't even want to admit what has happened to you because mm. <laughs> you at least I'm so invested in it and I love it so much that I don't want I don't want to admit how, how much damage has been done and and to what levels that damage has gone but that is, after you grieve you know after you fling yourself face down on the carpet for a couple of days <laughs> then you just have to pick yourself up and and Assess the damage. I guess that's the next step is doing a really honest and hard, complete, thorough assessment of the damage to your short term research agenda and your midterm, you know, two year plan and also to your five year and 10 year research agendas, because we can all say, well, this is temporary and let's hope it is. Um, but, but you have to have a plan for for this to go on longer than we might expect. So your research, that immediate project that you had to reassess was one that involved that travel and a very specific kind of hands-on research. Could you talk a bit about what that project was and then how that had to totally change? Yes, um, this is actually a two-part project. It's a, a monograph under contract uh, with the University of Toronto Press, as well as a scholarly edition of five books. It's a multiple book scholarly edition under contract. Yeah, I know under contract with uh, with the MHRA, which is the the UK's humanities agency. It's the Modern Humanities Research Association, and in both cases, the observations of particular rare book copies that. I was planning, that was going to be the, the actual um, meat and heart of some chapters because no one has done this research before. No one has looked at these particular copies in terms of one another and aiming at the questions and conclusions that I was hoping for. Um, the set of questions is particular to, to these works and uh, the, the in-person, on-site archival observations of those particular copies of those particular books were, I was hoping, 
we're going to add up to some new conclusions that I think had the potential to change a lot of what we say about this work, about these works, and about the periods that I study. So it, was, it wasn't incidental. It was crucial research for both of these projects. And so I thought, all right, what do you do now? You're not going to be able to do that. And, and there's a particular complication here, and I don't know how many researchers listening will have this complication, but some of them might, so I should probably mention it. Um, I have an autoimmune disease called lupus, and it means that I can't take a vaccine. I will not be able to look forward to a day when I can get back on airplanes and go back and see these things. That is just not going to happen. Um, so... Instead of stopping completely, which would probably be the logical thing to do, <laughs> instead of stopping completely, I thought, all right, your goal, my goal anyway, is to aim the long pass into the future and to, to throw this material forward into the future for future researchers, for future readers, for future scholars. So I thought, all right, in what sense can you still meet the larger goal of your research which is contributing to human knowledge over the long, long term. Can you still meet that goal? Well, yes. So I decided what I would do was lay out very specifically the questions that I had for these objects of study that I can't see. What exactly was I hoping to find? Not in a general way, but in a very specific way. And so I'm going, what I'm going to do is I'm going to include lists of all those copies, what we currently know about them, what I would have wanted to know about them, and how I believe those questions could also contribute to our knowledge. And, and my secret hope is that some young researcher, some PhD student or postdoc or brand new assistant professor will pick this up and say, all right, I have a roadmap. It is going to be so easy to do this. And old cold iron, she's probably wrong about some things, but I can fix it because I'm going to go to those archives and see. <laughs> and that would just be so wonderful if one or more future researchers could pick this up and, and get it right um, you know, long after I'm gone. But, so that was, that was my thought. I thought, okay, what's the greater goal here and how can I still serve the greater goal of this research? Even if I can't do it, someone can do it. <laughs> That's a, that's a huge sacrifice to make to realize and grieve that I may not be the one who makes that big discovery, but I have all this legwork and I can get that out there, that that is invaluable research too. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's really hard to do that. But when you remember the larger goal here, in, increasing the world's store of knowledge, uh, improving human life in some small corner of human life that, that where I live. Um, it's a good thing. Did you learn about this process of, of grieving and of reassessing everything from someone or something, or was this something you, you had to just dive into and go, well, there is no playbook for this. What do I do? I think the latter, um, there is no playbook for this. I mean, the, did I learn it from someone? I had fantastic professors and mentors and have had many great role models of doing things like paying it forward and being generous with research and, and 
not letting setbacks stop you. I had a lot of good role models for that. Very challenging and demanding people who were just tough as nails and who, who never let anything get them down and just kept going no matter what. So in a sense, all, all the ancestors provide that model. Um, but it was in those afternoons of grief and damage control where I just thought, okay, I'm either up against a really bad wall, a permanent wall that stops me, or I've got to find some value and create that somehow. And I picked the second thing. Maybe it's just a sanguine temperament or something, but that, that's the thing I figured. I just couldn't, I just couldn't let it all go, you know. Oh. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I am shifting the, the questions. I'm, I'm, I'm laying out what would have been done, hoping that some future researchers, researcher or researchers will be able to pick that up and adjust it and correct it and make it better when they can see those objects that I will never be able to see. Ooh, just saying that hurt. I will never be able to see. Oh, ouch, ouch. But, okay. So, um, and then and then shifting the questions. And here's the second part that's kind of interesting. A, a long time ago in my career, I was labeled a theorist of what I do. And yes, of course, we all theorize what we do. We have to necessarily. But it didn't feel like a good label to me. Um, not that I scorn theory. I use theory, as we all do. But I didn't want to be labeled as a mere theorist. I mean, mere is my word for it. <laughs> I was labeled. So, so I didn't like that. Um, however, I'm returning to that and reassessing it and thinking, okay, there really are some theoretical implications here that I've just left in footnotes or just dropped in an aside at the end of a paragraph, like, oh, by the way, you could theorize this if you wanted to. But why not, now that I can't do the archival work, why not allow that dimension of the work to grow a little bit and to take up a little bit of time and thought and space in the work instead of uh, sticking with one consistent, coherent methodology or set of methodologies and allowing theory to be kind of a grace note, why not shift the focus onto that? Because I can do that right here at my desk with a broken foot or not. Oh, by the way, one of the things that made 2020 great was that I broke three bones in my foot. Ah, <laughs> I know, it's just crazy. But so, so I thought, well, here I am at the desk, not on airplanes, not in archives. Let's see if I can grow this other side of the work. So maybe researchers can look at their work and see something they've chosen not to focus on, but that might, this might be a time when they could grow that side of the work or expand it or enhance that side of the work. It is possible to do. Not easy, not ideal, but maybe possible. Yeah, looking at the, the different facets of your research and saying, okay, which one of those do I pick up that I may have just put in the sidelines right. until right. now? So I would say make a backup plan make make a series of backup plans, both short and long-term. Kind of follow an if-then trail. If this happens, then I'll do this. If this happens, then I'll do that. If the other thing happens, then I'll do that. Um, and, and, and multiple. I, I found myself writing multiple if-then chains. Um, and, and I put backups on my backups. <laughs> so uh, if, if nothing else, it reacquaints you with all the little 
ins and outs of your own research. And then there's another thing that I think is important for people to do is not to be afraid of their presses, their editors, their granting agencies, the people who are funding their research or supporting it in some other way. I would say don't be afraid of that. Once you've got your plan in place, your backup plans in place, reach out to those people, contact them and say, hello, we're in the pandemic. And as you might, as you might well expect or realize, this project is going to have to change shape. I wouldn't necessarily say, I wouldn't necessarily let all your granting agencies and presses know about your grieving afternoon. (laughs) And I'm not saying to spin it for them, but I am saying that if you've got a positive backup plan, let them know that right up front. Say, I'm not abandoning this. It's just going to change shape. It's going to be refocused on a different set of questions, a slightly different set of questions, but it's still valid. And I can talk to you about that you know, if you want to hear about that. And mostly they do. In fact, I contacted my editor at a press who was so grateful to hear from me and who even said, I thank you for letting me know that it's not gone. I'm I'm watching projects fall left and right. And we're having to pivot. We're having to rethink what we're doing. Our budgets are changing. Our commitments are changing. Some contracts are falling through. We're not sure about new ones. We want to publish great books. And so thank you for telling me how you're going to resolve this. She, she was also really nice about the timeline. You know, presses tend to want their books on time. But right now, they are having to reschedule everything, too. So it's actually a good moment to contact your press and say, it's not going to come in as promised, but how about six extra months? And, and they, they are generally willing to work with you on this. Same thing for editors. A couple of articles have had to shift, and both editors, um, both the editor at Oxford and um, my editor said, yes, absolutely. We, we're glad. Other people are late, too. We've shifted our plans. Thanks for letting us know. So those tend to be kind of encouraging conversations because, you, you, you know, don't go in it with shame. I kind of went in with a little shame, like, oh, no, it's not going to be as good. Oh, no. But, but the uh, humanities editor did not make me feel that way at all. She was actually really welcoming and encouraging. Do you feel like this is a trend that is based out of the pandemic coming out of that? Or have you experienced that kind of flexibility before something like this happened? <laughs> no, I I have not experienced a whole lot of deadline flexibility before the pandemic. <laughs> no, they want their books on time. They want them now. They want to get them out. Their marketing department is is rattling their cages for them. But <laughs> so I I do think the pandemic has made presses a lot more or at least the ones I've dealt with so far. It has made the presses more flexible because everyone is experiencing this. And granting agencies the same way. I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure probably many people are aware of this, but for example, the ACLS, which is the American Council of Learned Societies, which has a big set of fellowship programs, they have turned their central fellowship program into, uh, in response to the pandemic and to other events in 2020, they have 
made their central fellowship program only for untenured people. So that means that untenured people are going to have a great shot at one of the most prestigious fellowships and one of the most difficult to get this year. So this is their moment. <laughs> In a way, this is an opportunity like no other. So um, I, do, I do think contacting your agencies and your presses and your editors and any other people who are supporting your work or you're working with is a really good thing to do. Mm. And not be afraid of them. Yeah. It gave me a big emotional boost, actually, to, to know that the presses and editors were still so glad that I was in kind of recovery mode and that and they were glad to hear about the plans and supportive about changing the deadline. And so that's I think that can only be a good thing. Mm, mm -hmm. Do you remember what it was like publishing your first book? Oh, yes. <laughs> it was great. Um, I, I had a really lucky, good experience with the University of Michigan Press, which at that time was doing a lot in uh, late medieval, early Renaissance, which is my field. And um, I just, I had applied for an NEH for the book project and had just learned that I won it and was kind of on a little bit of a high, I guess. And I went to, I forget which conference it was. It was maybe an MLA conference or maybe it was an RSA. Anyway, the press was there. And I, I, I had always liked their books because they were on great paper and they did really nice color illustrations of manuscripts and early printed books. And I thought, this is, you know, this is quality. This is a really high quality book. But it's not so crazy ambitious for a first book, <laughs> you know. I was I was a little I was a little shy back then, um, so I so I went to this conference and I was looking at their beautiful books and I just right at the book fair I, book tables, I just looked up to this person and said, "Could you would you talk to me about my book? I have a book project and I would really love to publish a book with you because these books are so beautiful and so finely done and so such good quality." Um, could I talk to you about my book? And this editor said, why, absolutely. Uh, I have an opening at one o'clock. <laughs> okay. So I came back at one o'clock and sat down with this editor, with him over coffee. And he said, tell me about your book. And I told him about the book. And he said, we would love to see that book. Send it to us. Here's my email. Here's, here's where you should send it. Uh, when can you send it? <laughs> And I said, I said, I can send it tomorrow. It's not completely perfect yet, but I can send you a, good, a manuscript tomorrow if you want. And he said, sure. And I did. And the next week I had a contract. So it was kind of astonishing in a way. Um, I did mention to him that I had just won the NEH for it. So that, so that probably didn't hurt. But I don't think that was necessary, really. I think just talking to the editors is a good thing to do. Tell them about your work and they will, they will, they are honest. They'll let you know. That's awesome. I like the connection to between that, that first book, how just talking with them and being honest with them about your idea and excited about that. It translates as well to this post pandemic moment that we're in where you need to be willing to talk to your editors again, really put your ideas out there and then your, your yes. new ideas, your plan yes. B, if you need that. 
Right. Exactly. Your plan B and your plan C. Um, yes. And, and, and I think if you already have a good relationship with your editors or your presses or your, um, your uh, granting agencies, that it's easier because then you know them and you, you have an established relationship. But even if you don't, this is almost a chance to establish a relationship with them. If you, if you don't have a very close one, you can Zoom with your press and say, wow, this has been really hard and, and let them know and then have a good conversation. So I think there are opportunities here as well. So with your collaborators, what working with them, did you learn anything that you think would help with future collaborations or that uh, younger researchers right now could take as they're trying to continue their collaborations that have been possibly derailed? Yes, I would say communication with your collaborators is one of the first things to do, even if it's just to touch base and say, we need to make some plans. Um, I am lucky that I have a bunch of really brilliant people in, you know, all around the world that, who are working on this translation project, tra trajectories of translation project. Um, but even if you don't know them very well, and most of these people I've worked with over, you know, more than a decade, um, so I do know them well, but even if you, I'd say, even if you aren't particularly close to your collaborators personally, I would say that now's a good time to reach out to them, get to know them better, ex express your just concern for their well-being. Um, it really helps to feel like you're a team, or at least it, we, we feel like that on our team. And, and I think that's one of the great strengths of it you know just to just to have that human side of it and then and then the research goes really well because all all the the emotional parts are in place and in in a good place so the rest of it can thrive then um so yeah i'd say definitely contact your collaborators make plans together see see if if they've got some constraints that you're unaware of uh let them know about the your constraints and brainstorm a little to see how you can salvage everything. That's something that we get asked a lot too at our office. Uh, they want to find collaborators. They want to find interdisciplinary collaborating researchers, and they they need that time to spend with them to understand what kind of connections they can make. But getting that first step of finding them, that's the big you know, puzzle. How do you do that? Well, I can tell you how that has always worked for me and very happily. It starts with um, something that you're already doing. Something that you're already doing in your research that is making you happy and that you're doing, that you're feeling like you're making good progress with or good success with or something that's very interesting to you. When you present that research at your first conference, at the first conference where you start talking about that, people are going to show up in that audience and they're going to ask questions. There will be people on the panel with you who will have shared interests. Talk to those people. Get their emails. Get their names. Ask them what they're doing. Ask them how and why they're doing it. And pretty soon you've got a whole Rolodex of, you know, an entire email contact list of people who are close to and in your area of research. Conferences, extremely important for meeting these people. Also, when you, I have a, also have a conference secret, go to things that aren't in your field, and then you see interdisciplinary connections, and you see 
the bigger picture of your research and you don't get so bogged down in the tiny little details of your specialty. You can see a, a broader picture. But certainly, in your own little conference, in your own little field, in your own little panels, you're going to meet these people and uh, find out what they do. See if, it, see if you have things in common. Almost always you will. Um, and even if not right away, as you, are, as you know, people's research evolves over the years. And where you might not have been working on something, some area that you met someone who's working in, then five years later you are interested in that area and you've read some articles from that person and you remember that person and they remember you. And then you meet for lunch at the next conference and you say, hey, what about this? What if we, what if we got together on this or that? So for me, conferences have been a really great place not only to learn more, which is their primary purpose, and to share research, which is their primary purpose, but also to see what else is going on and who else is doing interesting things. And then to connect with those interesting people and say, tell them, I think your research on such and such is really neat. And I think it has a connection to mine. And here, here is how I perceive that connection. What do you think? And then listen to what they say and, and go from there. So there's so many nice people in this field, in my field anyway, and I think in academia in general, they are just absolutely lovely people. They're people you would want to be friends with, even if you weren't in the same field. And I, some of my dearest friends over these years have been people I met in some research setting or other and found out what great human beings they are and then formed fast friendships with them. So what kind of advice, this is kind of a broad question, but what, what kind of advice would you want to give young researchers today, young faculty researchers? Well, um, follow your heart and your brain. I mean, I know that sounds so corny. It's really embarrassing to have said something like that. But I would say that you're in this for a reason. Figure out what the big reason is and follow that and, and play to your strengths but at the same time you're playing to your strengths, strengthen your weaknesses. In other words, let's say you're a researcher um, who works on multilingualism and your languages are French and German and Russian. And you've never done an Asian language. So you stay away from that because it's not an expertise of yours. But you're pretty good at learning languages. Well, I would say, while you're doing your French and German and Russian playing to your strengths work, meanwhile, learn some Asian languages, <laughs> or at least one. Learn something that is not right directly in your area of strength so that you become stronger, so that you become smarter, so that you become better, so that your questions open up outside what you think you already know, because you never know what you don't know. <laughs> and so you need to, you need to keep an eye on that, that edge of your knowledge, those edges of your knowledge and explore there and strengthen there. Always, always be learning more. That is the, that is the thing. That's the reason I get up in the morning on the, on the, on the intellectual side of the house. That's the reason I get up in the morning because I know that today I'm going to learn some great new stuff that I had no idea I needed to know. <laughs> so if you love learning things, then you won't have a problem. Uh, just keep learning more and keep stretching your own expertise and keep um, looking at new things. Don't ever accept your own beliefs as uh, the end-all and be-all. 
Just keep, keep, keep learning and keep an eye on the future. To me, one of, one of the important things about research is that it connects the past to the future. The, what has been known, we might be changing that. If we're good researchers, we're going to be adding to that and changing that and refining that and improving that. And then we're doing that because we hope, at least I hope, that future researchers are going to take what I did, refine it, improve it, change it, expand it, make it better, know more. Uh, you know, always know more, always be learning more. So I guess that's the, that's the simple answer is never stop, never let a day go by when you, when you don't learn something new. Make sure you learn something new every single day and ideally all day long if you can <laughs> and share it generously with others. <laughs> that's it. It's, it's, the, it's the formula for real joy, I think, or at least it has been for me. I, I am never happier than when I'm learning new stuff. So that happiness for learning things that are new and keeping yourself constantly learning, how does that coexist with that race for tenure or assistant to associate professor? Or associate to full yeah. or any, any, any other milestone that you want to mark. Okay, well, I kind of, maybe, maybe this isn't great advice, but I have an unusual take on this, and it might not be the one you always hear. I mean, what you'll usually hear is uh, keep an eye on the prize, make sure you're goal-directed, make sure you, you keep the next thing in mind. And that's good advice. I'm not saying that's bad advice, but that's not really how it worked for me. What worked for me and I think probably made it a whole lot less stressful, was I, I took things like tenure, promotion, um, all those other marks of success, I consider those as follow-ons, as secondary, as um, incidental. And I know that sounds crazy, and I, and I don't want to give anybody bad advice here, but for me, the real thing is increasing what I know learning more and uh, refining what I know to make it better and better and better and sharing that with other people in a way that's going to be useful to them in the future. And so if you just do that, then of course you're going to write books and you're going to write articles and you're going to get grants and you're going to do all these things, but you're not doing it in order to write the book or in order to get the grant or in order to get tenure. It's sort of, it's, instead of being instrumentalist about it, you go for the heart of what you're doing and you keep your purpose in mind. And then all the rest just kind of falls in your lap and you didn't really even have to do anything much. Um, you know, some. You do have to write the book. But, <laughs> but you want to do that anyway because that's going to be contributing, you know, contributing to future readers. So, I mean... I know that's kind of strange and it's, it might be bad advice for some people. So I, I, I would say this is, you know, your mileage may vary on this, um, but it's what worked for me. And it also meant that I wasn't ever stressing about things like tenure and promotion. I it just sort of what I was concerned about and what I put all my energy on was the research and the writing and the, and the conferences and the sharing and the, the team, the team collaborations and, um, the reason to get a grant was to do the work, not just to get the grant. You know, I just wanted to do the work. So keeping that focus on your, your, your central purpose and letting everything flow from that was kind of a, it kind of meant that 
I didn't have a lot of stress about those milestones. And I didn't feel like I had to push myself in any way because all this research was happening. And it just so happened that that's the reason they were going to give me tenure. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a way, it's a way. It's not, it's not the only way to do this by any means. And it was kind of a weird way, but it's the way it worked for me. You already have that engine and that motivation to make that work happen because you want it. Right. And then doing that great work, that's what gets you noticed. So it absolutely sounds like it feeds into the 10-year process. You're doing the great stuff because you want to, and it speaks volumes. I am here to do this work and to do it really well, as well as I possibly can. And because it gives me great pleasure to do this. And for me, the advice of do what you love, because this is just too hard to do unless you love it. Um, that's what worked for me. Everyone is motivated differently. And so this, might, this advice might not work for everyone. Don't give up. You can give yourself time to grieve, pick yourself up, make a very specific set of plans and backup plans. And, and just don't give up. You, we, we can get through this. I believe that there is a future and research is part of it. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. To stay up to date with content, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, including show notes for this episode, go to journeysinresearch.podbean.com or visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ord.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the title. Music for this episode by Ketza. And special thanks to everyone who helped make our first episode possible. Beth Hodges, Cece Pierre, Mike Mitchell, Grace Adkisson, Rachel Goff-Albritton, Walter Lee, Neil Coker, and our guest, Ann Coldiron. I'm your host, Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>